0: Well, I hope you like stories. I like stories. And today, I've got two stories for you. One that we've been looking at in the Bible, the story of a woman named Esther. And we're going to get into more of that. We've been looking at this over the previous month or two. And as we come this morning, I got a story that relates to the story of Esther that I hope you will find very very interesting as well as applicable the story that I'm going to talk about first is the story of this man I don't know if anybody here recognizes this individual this man is Alvin York he is better known by the name Sergeant York just kind of a show of hands does anybody know who he is raise your hand oh okay a few of you I have mentioned him over time. It is because he is one of my greatest heroes of all time. Alvin York, Sergeant York, fought in World War I. World War I is a war, incredibly, that I know somebody who fought in it. I don't know if anybody here knows anybody that fought in World War I, but my grandfather, the one I often mentioned, who died on March 18, 1968, was in World War I, and... It has always fascinated me how my grandfather fought in that war, but this man, this man from Tennessee, was one of the greatest heroes of that war, one of the greatest American heroes ever. I'm going to tell you his story today, and I'm going to tell you more next week, because I want to get part of it this week, and hopefully you'll come back for more of it next week. But the reason I'm telling you the story is how incredibly this story fits with our story in Esther in the sense of there's some principles in it as well as current events like number one is this will tell us as we'll watch Alvin York's story Sergeant York's story play out about God's invisible hand we've been talking in the book of Esther how God works in mysterious ways especially as he can send angels And if you've heard this before about a guardian angel, you wonder, is that something that's made up? That's actually in the Bible, Psalm 91. We also learn from the Bible how God sends angels unawares to people who are believers in Jesus Christ. That's an incredible thought. That's Hebrews 13. We know that God works all things together for good for those who love Christ Jesus. And he is gracious to all people, people who know him as their savior and people who don't. And we're gonna watch how God had his hand on Alvin York. Alvin York was somebody that had a real indirect tie to Thanksgiving. Again, it's Thanksgiving week. Alvin York was a great turkey hunter. He will talk about that here in a second. But he was somebody that was an expert marksman, and that will play a part in this story. His a key event in his life occurred on October 8th 1918 and we would have just celebrated another anniversary of that for those of you who are aware last week when we celebrated veterans day veterans day was originally called what armistice day because it was on november 11th at 11 a.m not p.m a.m so the 11th month of on the 11th day, at 11 a.m., World War I ended. And it is um, the anniversary that we just celebrated last week. So these events that, that we're going to be looking at on October 8, 1918, play a key role in the end of World War I. And then lastly, this story does have, I think, a great input into the end of World War I that will have a great impact on the Jewish people. Alvin York was born on December 13, 1887. He was born in a uh, little town called Paul Mall, Tennessee. It was an extremely rural area. His parents didn't have a lot of money and they needed the kids to work the farm so he only goes to school for three or four months and then his father pulls him out when they need food because as even a young man he's an expert marksman he's told to go up into the mountains go hunting and he'll bring back turkeys he'll bring back other wild game and he is developing his skills while hunting to become an expert marksmanship marksman in 1911, I remember I said he was born in 1887, so he's a young man, his father unexpectedly dies. And that plays a key role in the real-life story of when he gets drafted because his mother doesn't want him to go to war. His mother will appeal that, that about being a conscientious, conscientious objector to the war. If you ever see Alvin, the uh, Sergeant York movie it'll play out that he's the conscientious objector. It's not. The real story is, is that his mother uh, uses that appeal so that she doesn't lose her son in the war. So when the father dies in 1911, it puts more pressure on him, more honey, but it also causes him to be wild. He is angry at the world, angry at life, and he begins to drink and become a wild man. But then around, I can't tell you the exact date. I'll have this for you next week. He goes to a bar. And I don't know if any of you have ever been to a bar. You watch a fight break out which as a side note, I digress. When I drive down Calumet Avenue, I can always tell when somebody's had a bar fight because the windows are blown out, the the doors are broken, and you see that. So it's very typical. When you go to a bar, people are drinking. They get in a fight. Alvin York is at at a bar, and guess what happens? A fight breaks out, and guess what happens? His best friend gets killed. As he comes home, he's really distraught. He's hurt, and his mother challenges him and says, do you want to end up like a drunk like your father? And she has become a believer a few years earlier, and basically Alvin York becomes a believer at this point. And it's really important that you understand this, because uh, in the movie, if you ever watch his movie, he'll talk about the fact that, uh, they'll talk in the movie like a bolt of lightning came down, almost kills him, and he makes him reflect upon his life. But when they were making the movie, the producers of the movies asked him about his conversion, and he said that when I finally came to Christ, it was like lightning hit me, and my life got radically changed, okay? And that's what I want you to understand, because when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, your life should radically change, all right? So what happens on October 8th, 1918, is just almost like, Superhuman action movie that is incredible. Now, if you ever watch a, an action movie and you watch that something is uh, happening with your hero, some of these movies get absolutely incredible when all of a sudden it's like one guy versus a thousand. Right, <laughs> and, and we'll talk more about this next week but there's where you come in and all of a sudden you're the, you're the superhero and there's 200 people and they've all got guns and they're all shooting and they never hit you and then you're the one that gets through and you just watch this movie and you say this is incredible this is, this is nuts Nobody would, nothing like this would ever happen but on October 8th it did on October 8th it wasn't made up on October 8th in the Argonne Forest on the Western Front, Alvin York did something that I still get teared up about. Because the Western Front is the line pretty much between Germany and France, and here's the Argonne Forest. And when you hear that expression, all's quiet on the Western Front, I don't know if anybody ever saw the original movie as a side note. The original movie from back around in the early 1920s. Do you know that movie is all about how the writer didn't want to, the movie, excuse me, the book was is all about how he wanted to show the horrors of war and also show that it wasn't the Jewish people as the cause of World War I's loss for Germany. So Hitler, when this movie is out, won't show it in Germany because it shows the horrors of war and it shows the Jews were not the ones responsible for the Germans losing. But what you need to know, if you ever hear this line, all's quiet on the Western front, that in this forest, it was the site of some of the worst and horrific battles. And I'm gonna go between two slides. What I'm gonna show you is just heart-wrenching because this here, is the cemetery that's in the Argonne Forest now. It has more dead of Americans than any place in Europe. There are over 14,000 soldiers who were killed in World War I, mainly in that Argonne Forest area. So this is mainly that Argonne Forest, and most of them from the battle that I'm about to tell you about Alvin York. In this battle, what happens is, that as York and his troops are moving towards the front line, it's on October 8th on a foggy morning that all of a sudden the Germans start shooting around 6, 10 a.m. in the morning. His commander, Alvin York's commander says, hey, we got to stop this and we're pinned down and they're being killed. All All the soldiers, there's no escape. There's no hope for them. And then what happens is is that his commander, and I'm gonna go through the exact route next week, will send Alvin York around the flank, and all of a sudden his, he's got like 14 guys with him, and they start getting killed. And then all of a sudden, something takes off in York's mind. And he starts, at least in the way they portray it in the movie, is that he feels as if like I'm hunting turkey. And he begins to start to pick off the Germans at the end and begins moving through the gunners. Again, there's like, I, if I'm gonna say this number, eight to 10 machine gun turrets. They are just bearing down. The, the Americans are being killed. And he starts going one by one by one. He's behind the enemy lines and he's picking them off. And he says in the movie, it was like if you, if you shoot in the middle, the turkeys all run. But if you shoot on the end, the turkeys don't know the other one's shot. And when it's all said and done, you have to, he begins going like from section to section to section, and he begins capturing Germans. So not only is he killing them, but he finally comes to this one center where these Germans are in this turret, and all of a sudden, the, the German commander yells out in English something like, I give up! And because of that, York begins to say, all right, well then go to the next one and tell them to stop. And on this foggy morning... As the Americans are fighting, and all of a sudden the shooting stops, down comes the road with Alvin York, Sergeant York, with, I get the exact number, I think it's 132 German soldiers. He'll kill 30, he will kill 25 himself. What is the exact number? Yes, his heroism resulted in 25 German dead and the capture of 132 more. He will receive over 90 medals, including the Medal of Honor. But what you need to know, how this ties in, is when the war gets over, because this is like a month before the end of the war, General Pershing and the other generals are about to give York the Medal of Honor. Do you know they don't want to give it to him? Do you know... I've never heard this before. They don't want to give it to him. Why don't they want to give it to him? Because they don't believe he could have done it. They literally take him there after the war and they say to him, how did you do it? How did you do it? They make him walk through how he did it. And this is a direct quote. York, how did you do it? The general asked. And he said, sir, it is not manpower. A higher power than man power guided and watched over me and told me what to do sergeant york became the reluctant war hero we'll talk more about his life next week because it's amazing what he did but it's clear God's favor was on his hand. And it is God's favor that protected him. And it's God's favor that we're talking about. Favor is when God does bless. God has a positive thing in your life. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Esther. If you have a Bible or near someone, turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 5 is where we're at. But let me just tell you, as we look at this story of Esther... We are, seeing, <clears throat> we are seeing a story of God in the midst of trials and difficulties can put his favor on an individual. And it's really important that you have a right perspective and a right understanding of this. Because like I alluded in the uh, welcome this morning, we're not talking about a health, wealth, and prosperity that everything is always going to work out. There were believers in World War I who got killed. I got that. But when God wants you to get something done, he'll do it. And Esther will be one of the greatest pictures of somebody who had God's favor on their life. And I can tell you, as we're going to look today, how important it is to live life with God's favor and not without, not having it. Our story plays out that if you were with us, chapter 1 is a true story about a king who really lived back in 480-some B.C., That's history. That's so long ago. But the reality of it is we know historically that this king really lived. His name is, in some Bibles, Ahasuerus. In other Bibles, it is Xerxes. It is a story that is fascinating because here you got this king that, as we studied it, was preparing for a battle in, in, um, in his day with Greece. The 300 is a movie that some of you have even seen yourself. That That is a battle that comes out of chapter 1 indirectly, even though it's not mentioned in chapter 1. It is in chapter 1 that the king is preparing for the battle. And through that process, through a drunken, stupor, wild night, he gets angry and he gets rid of the queen. And this is why the crown is here, because his queen is deposed. And now he's got to get a new queen. And when we went into chapter 2, we see that there is a new queen. Now, this isn't a real picture, but this woman is a Jew who is named Esther. We learned about her and her cousin Mordecai in chapter 2. Some of you have heard the story of Esther and think, oh, it's this wonderful, beautiful, beauty pageant love story. It's not. It is a decadent, sexually immoral, incredibly vile contest. But Esther is a refugee. She is caught up in this. Her parents are dead. She is an orphan. And she is group, pulled into this group of women hundreds of young girls to get themselves ready to have a wild sex night with the king. He's going to decide who he likes best. And then when he wants to see her and not see her, she can just tell her, don't come in. Well, I, I still have other girls to see. That's what chapter two is about. And, but the key is, is that of all the ones that do come in to see the king, Esther is picked to be the queen. And it does give her more privileges. What we see, though, is when chapter 3 comes about, this man named Haman, who's a new character in our story, comes in. He is a man that, from we believe from history, was a, an Amalekite. Malachite, like a French or German, you know, an American. It was a group of people that hated the Jews, tried to kill and wipe out the Jews when they came out of Egypt. It is We believe it is his family history that it helps helps inspire his intense hatred for the Jews. And when he sees that Mordecai won't bow down to him, because Haman is now told to be the second man in the, the kingdom, that when Mordecai won't bow down to him and recognize him, you know, like when a judge goes in the, into a courtroom and they say, "All oh, rise, Haman is angry that Mordecai won't stand up. Now, Haman had the right at that point as the second in command to say, I am angry and I'm gonna penalize Mordecai for not honoring me. But because he is so angry he decides, not I'm only going to kill, I am going to kill Mordecai. I am going to kill every Jew. And through it, he throws the dice, and he, we call the lot, and he comes up with a plan that 11 months from chapter 3, he will have a holocaust, and he gets the king unawares to sign off on a deal that we're going to kill all the people that are Jewish and the king doesn't know it. When we go to chapter 4, when we go to chapter 4, there is incredible anguish, there's incredible pain as the Jews and people who like the Jews hear what's going to happen. This is incredible. We're talking not just about 100 people, we are talking, I believe, between 10 to 15 million people. Because This king that is king over Persia at this time, this king Ahasuerus, has the largest territory that mankind has ever seen at this time. It goes from India to Greece. There are millions and millions of Jews that have been dispersed since 605 B.C. Remember I said this is around 480 B.C. And the pain and the horror of this is incredible, and it's made all the more intense. When Mordecai comes rushing in and says to Esther, you basically, through an intermediary, he says to her, you got to do something. you got to go talk to the king. You, who knows if it was for a time such as this that you could say something. But in that interchange, Esther has said, wait a second. You know, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't like a fairy tale, Cinderella kind of thing. This is where basically, if I go in to see the king unannounced, I could have my head cut off. I could be killed. And, and I got to think about this. Now, what would you do at this time? You're, you're queen. You've got it all. They may never find out that you're a Jew. And remember, for those of you who are here, if you haven't heard, the Jews are refugees. We went to the book of Ezra, chapter 4, and we saw how during this entire time, maybe 30, 40 years of of the Persian reign, there was this incredible lie that the Jews are subversive people and they're misrepresented. (laughs) You talk about the current day. You can go to Ezra, chapter 4, and see how people were making lies up about them. So that is why Esther's not telling anyone that she's Jewish. That's why the king doesn't know that she's Jewish, and all this pain, all this hurt, if you can imagine, we're not talking something that is like make-believe. We are talking incredible slaughter. Is planned for 11 months. And when we come to chapter 5, what we saw was that Esther had to make a decision, and she was scared. But when we come to chapter 5, she comes in, if you can look at chapter five, verse one, and it says, it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court on the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting in his royal throne and in the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And you had to imagine because we, even though we know the story that things are gonna turn out okay, her heart had to be beating. She had to have all this unexpected um, a- anticipation, this fear, what's gonna happen? But then look at verse two. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor. And that's our key word, favor. Blessing in the sense of a specific advantage. And the king lets her in. He then brings her and says, what do you want? And she says, well, let's have a banquet. And I want you to bring Haman. Hey, bring Haman to a meal. And Haman gets invited. And when they're at this meal, as it progresses through, the king says, well, what's on your mind, Esther? I've given you favor. And she goes, well, I want to go to a second banquet. We're never told in the Bible why the second banquet. We speculate. We speculate it was because she wanted Haman alone. She didn't want anyone there. Maybe she was scared. That's one of the speculations. But I think she was strategically working this out. As we come now to verse 9, we come to the second half of this evening. When Haman is now eaten at the first banquet and he's excited about going to the second one. So after we've played out and we saw Esther has God's favor, she's faithful. The story plays out and now we come where God's favor is going to be absent. And here is a proverb that I want you to understand. Good people obtain favor from the Lord, but he condemns those who devise wicked schemes. This is a truth that is in Proverbs that is still applicable today. Let's go through the story. Look at verse 9. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. Why not? From his perspective, he doesn't know why he's at the banquet. Esther has called him to the banquet, and he's eating with the king. And you've got to remember, this is one of the, the most powerful man in the entire world. And he is in a dinner party with just the king, his queen, and himself. We don't know where his wife's at, Haman's wife's at. But verse nine says, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he had did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. He's raging. He's very upset. It's like, it's incredible because Haman has everything, but one person, one little thing won't go right And he's irate. Verse 10, Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and went and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeres. Zeres is a Persian name, so I'm not gonna go into that deep detail, but now he's like, I wanna share my anger. You ever like something happened to you, you just wanna tell people what happened and how it affected you and what you went through? That's sort of what's going on right here. Here we get to see a man's heart Verse 11, then Haman recounted to them the glory of the riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and now he had promoted him above the princes and the servants of the king. And Haman said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king into the banquet which he had prepared and tomorrow now also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew, not just Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Basically, he's getting irate. (laughs) What did you just witness? We're telling this story, and the author is telling it so wonderful. He's building up the tension. He's building up what's happening. And here, all of a sudden, we digress. We're not just having Esther break into the king's court and saying, listen, you don't know what's going on. This Haman is trying to wipe out all the Jews. No, we have her having fasted in prayer. And for those of you who were here, you remember we talked about how important it is to learn the power of prayer. I'm learning it. How you take time to pray, how you consider fasting, And that's something you have to think about. So Haman is in this dinner party and what has he done? He isn't just saying Mordecai didn't stand up and and didn't just bow to me. What he's saying is look at me, look how great I am. Look how wonderful my life is. Look how proud I am, where my sons, my daughters and my promotion and my place and all these things are happening to me. But this is where all of us need to understand And I've talked to people who sometimes just go like this where they just get, you know, so angry because of one little thing. And Mordecai, not honoring Haman, is driving this man nuts. Why couldn't he have just said, okay, I'll I'll get rid of Haman. I mean, I'll just get rid of Mordecai. But no, he is just enraged. And this is why sometimes you see People, this is where everyone here needs to worry about sin because sin is terrifying. Sin makes you think so irrational. And, and that's why God, when the tent, when he gives the, his commandment, says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the reason that was given was so that if somebody accidentally or didn't, even purposely knocked out a tooth, you didn't cut off their head. Haman is just enraged and it's terrifying what this has done because he is so arrogant. He's so prideful. And it's blinded him. So he's saying, we're going to kill all the Jews. And now he is telling this. You can imagine him gathering these people who probably all want his favor. And he's telling them the story. And look at verse 14. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, have a gallows 50 cubits hide made. And in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Mordecai hanged on it. Mordecai, as if, if we learned in chapter two, is in essence like a war hero. Or he's a hero to the king because he stopped an assassination plot. But he hasn't been honored yet. This is part of the reason we have this delay. We'll pick up more of this in a couple of weeks. But right now, it's have a gallows 50 cubits high, verse 14 said. And, and, and in the morning, ask the king to take Mordecai, have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. Basically, go kill somebody and then have a fun dinner. And this is often like when we talk even about how, how in Germany in World War II, they, they, they would send people to the gas chambers and then just have their meals and have their Christmas celebrations. Ridiculous. But that's exactly what they're saying. And they're saying, go, joyfully. Joyfully. And the advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. So how this was going on, and the idea that it's 50, 50 cubits high, it, we, we know the translation is 75 feet. What I want you to understand, this wasn't like out in the Wild West where you take a rope and you hang somebody. We know now that, <laughs> me, the idea of the king's favor is absent. Haman's, Haman's pride gives him no peace. He's absolutely have no peace. What we know is this. This is fascinating. These are rock and stone um, 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 cuttings from Persia. And the gallows are not ropes. Can you see? These are sticks. These are where they basically, what they did was impaled you. Okay? And, And so we know that the previous king of Persia, Darius, at one time, it took 3,000 people to kill, to show the, you know, the area that they were taking over. You mess with us. You don't just die. You get impaled and you slowly die. It was a horrible way for someone to die. It is the method from which the Romans will develop. The Romans will develop the concept of crucifixion, which becomes the all-time worst way for anyone to ever die. So we don't think necessarily that it was 75 feet of one pole. Maybe he would have built a platform that would have went up and then you you stick the stick on top of it. Can you imagine how horrible of a death that would be? How enraged you have to be? But Haman is prideful. And what I want you to understand is that when you have pride and you don't have God's favor... You really don't get it checked. And and, and because of that, Haman is basically going down the path of revenge. And we'll talk more about this next week. But have you all heard that expression, right? When you're into revenge and you start to dig a hole to put someone in, all you're doing is digging your own grave. And that's what the big picture is, what Haman is doing. What I want us to learn is from Haman's story because I'm telling you whenever we go through one of these chapters it's important we always bring it back to the big picture we know where the story is we know that Esther and Mordecai are going to be victorious we need to always keep this in perspective as we're going through the big picture the story is all about how God had his hand on the nation of Israel you can't wipe out the Jews why is that It isn't just because they're Jewish. It is because God has sovereignly picked the Jewish people to be the answer through which salvation comes through the entire world. And they are not necessarily the most kindest, always nicest people in the world. But irregardless, the point is is that they are God's chosen. And Satan knows if he can wipe out the Jews, then he stops God's plan. And Haman is just one of many Hitlers and others that have tried to wipe out the Jews. But God has told us as Christians, we need to favor them. We need to honor them. So that's secondary. We'll come back to this, but this is horrific what has happened here. You can see these are pictures of people being put on a pole. There's, in this one, I think there's two. No, there's three. And then this one, there's one where the Persians killed someone. Well, what can we learn from this? What I'm just gonna go through two of these today is I want you to understand fear pride. You see, when we look at the story here, I think it's very, very important that we understand that God, God tells us over and over and over that basically if we have anything, it's because he has given it to us. There's a verse in the Bible, let me get my exact notes here, yeah, is that Haman was a prideful person, and he's a great model of what pride can do to you. The Bible talks about pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit goes before stumbling. Listen, are you a prideful person? This is something you need to be aware of. As unbelievers, incredibly, we all are. When the Bible says all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, if you haven't come to Christ, then there's a function of pride working in your life. And you need to understand this proverb, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Warren Wiersbe said, didn't Haman know that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall? Anybody who boasts about position, wealth, family, or anything else ought to heed the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist from the New Testament, the forerunner of Christ said, a man can receive nothing except it is given to him from heaven. Do you realize even today in 2023, if you have anything good, it is because of God's grace and mercy on your life. The Apostle Paul recognizes there's a church in Corinth, and they're kind of arrogant. Remember, we went through the book of 1 Corinthians, and it dealt with being arrogant. And he challenges them. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, for who makes you different from another? And what do you have that you didn't receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you glory if you didn't receive it? Listen, all of your talents, all of your abilities, your your privilege of being born in America in a world that is we all trying to come to America. Even as crazy as America is, people still want to come here because of the incredible privileges. Even today, we should all recognize it was given to us, the grace that God allowed us to come to this, to this, to this country. Listen, God hates pride. And you need to understand, if you are prideful, then you are in trouble today. I found this pastor from Dallas. His name is Alan Parr. Dallas Theological Seminary, and I'm sorry you can't, if you can't see it real well, he came up with this list, 15 subtle signs of pride in your life. I'm going to go through these real quick. Maybe I'll, I'll elaborate more next week, but I want you to understand is that, number one, if, you're, if you are a person who assumes you already know something when someone is teaching, <laughs> okay? Number two, seeing yourself as too good to perform certain tasks. Hey, would you do that? Would you pick that up? Would you, would you mop that floor? No, can't do that. Number three, being too proud to ask for help. There are people sometimes you offer your help, they won't take it, because why? They're too prideful. Feeling the need to consistently teach people things. And I deal with someone like this in my life, it's hard. They'll talk for an hour, but never ever listen. Talking about yourself a lot, okay? People who are, they often say narcissistic, they talk about themselves. Thinking you're better than others who are different or less fortunate. It's sort of an arrogant way to approach life you know, um, when you disregard the advice of others, when you are consistently critical, when you're consistently needing attention and affirmation, you're unable to receive constructive criticism, you're overly obsessed with your own physical appearance, okay, when you're unwilling to submit to authority, when you're ignoring people's attempt to communicate with you, when you're justifying your sin instead of admitting it, and you're name-dropping and Sadly, I say, each one of us could say, there's times we have done all of those. And here is one I'm adding. And this is one that this morning every one of you could check. You ignore God's word. You either listen or you ignore to God's word. See, pride is, I don't need God. I don't need him to tell me what to do. I don't need to read his Bible. I don't need to know his way of salvation. I don't need to know the way he lives, wants me to live. And and honestly, you ask yourself, even if you're a believing Christian, how often are you reading God's Bible? One of the things I keep wanting to make sure we all understand that when we face God, he is going to say, I gave you my word, how did you live it? Parr says, You can see pride is something that can creep in your life in various subtle ways. I encourage you to check your heart against this list and ask God to help you identify some ways that you struggle with pride and how you can exhibit more humility. See, the opposite of pride is humility and the person who comes to Christ is humble. Prideful people lose in the end and don't go to heaven. So this is important. And, and I'm going to talk more about this next week. And I want you to understand the second principle then is what I want you to do is to realize that Haman, when we looked at the story, he was a crazed man. Why? Because he didn't know God. And there's this great expression that you can fill in the blank on your sermon notes. No God, no peace, no God, no peace. Or you can say, no Jesus, K-N-O, K-N-O-W, no Jesus. Then you have Peace. Do you know that on the last night of his life, Jesus said in John chapter 14 that he gives peace, a peace that that we now know surpasses all understanding? That today we live in a world where people have no peace. The drug industry where people are spending billions of dollars every year to find answers to give them peace. And I bet you even some people in this room are looking for answers for peace. When the actuality is peace starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that could, lack of peace impact, impacts your pride, it acts you to act irrationally, acts you to ha- a- 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 causes you to have no tranquility in your life. That's what peace is. Haman, you can look at him just saying, think about this, you're the second person in command in the world's greatest empire of time. at that time. You have everything going for you, but you can just imagine his rage, his lack of peace. And it's ultimately because it's very evident. A man who wants to kill millions of people, women, children, let alone men, has a man that doesn't know God. He is no, no one who knows God. And then it comes out in his life. Connect the dots. And then look at your own life and be honest. The reason you lack peace is because you don't know God. And I will never forget there were things in my life that I looked at prior to me becoming a Christian and saying, why can't I have peace in this life? Why am I having these problems? And when I became a believer, things changed and I began to see solutions and answers that come only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we just want to finish. There's good news. There's this thing called the gospel. And the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down, we've done it here at Christian Fellowship Church from 1 Corinthians 15 through these five concepts that you need to understand, these five topics. Number one is that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Everyone here, every human, every person that you meet is a sinner. And the problem with that is is that sin separates you from God, separates you from his peace, and more so guarantees that you will physically die and then face a spiritual death. That's why sin is a problem that is so significant. Not only do you physically die, but you also spiritually end up in a place called hell. And that's an uncomfortable topic, but the reality of it is, unless you are someone that is right with God, and God even will call it being born again, that you are destined for that place. And it needs to be made known. This isn't something that I'll watch, I'll read the cartoons in the newspaper every week. And every once in a while, they'll have a cartoon of people in hell. And it's sort of like a game show kind of thing or some kind of fun type of thing. It is not. It is a place the Bible describes as a place of darkness, a place of isolation, a place of tormenting pain where you bite your lip and bite your tongue for relief. Next time you bite your tongue, think about that. That if you never come to faith in Jesus Christ, that will be your source of entertainment that is terrifying. Man's sin is so bad that the only solution is that God had to come to earth as a man. This is where we see God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He came to earth. Jesus Christ is God. All that he did where he walked on earth and and did miracles, it was to prove that he was actually God who came as a human because the penalty for sin is the death of a human and God has allowed there to be a substitute. And so the substitute was Jesus and the way he could pay the penalty that all of us owe and the penalty that you owe is that he had to be God and offered up his eternal life. His, resur- his death then we call the substitutionary atonement. He pays the penalty that we all owe. His resurrection proves that the payment was received but by faith alone you have to receive this. And unless you do that, you're destined to not only have no peace in this earth, but no peace for all eternity. And the book of Isaiah says this, there is no peace for the wicked. And you say, I'm not a wicked person, I'm a good citizen. But the reality of it is, you may never have murdered, you may not be a, a regular thief, but the reality of it is in God's eyes, everyone that is separated from Jesus Christ is wicked in his eyes. And I would imagine you may be someone who's never killed someone. You may not be somebody who has been a regular thief. The police aren't chasing you down the road. But I can guarantee you, in your heart, where no one can see, you have immoral sexual thoughts, you have anger issues, you have pride issues, you have lying issues, because the Bible is clear that it is in your heart that hasn't been changed, that this wickedness continues to flow. Maybe you're an expert on how to control it. We even saw Haman was able to control it for a bit, but eventually it all comes out. I want you to fear it. As I said, fear pride. So what did these stories both have in common? When we looked at Alvin York's, Sergeant York's, all seemed lost, the Germans were surrounding them, nothing could stop them. Esther faced a situation where the king's edict couldn't be reversed. Then we saw both needed heroism. York stepped up, and God had his hand on him. Esther stepped up, and we're going to see the big picture that God's hand was on her. What you both need to understand is that this saved the Jewish people. How did Alvin York, Sergeant York's story, do it? What you may not know it's kind of crazy. In World War I, the Ottoman Empire was still existent. If you would ask me, what is the Ottoman Empire? Isn't that an ancient empire? No, it went all the way up until 1917, 1918. It was the Turks, the, the Arabs, and they had this vast empire that even now Erdogan, the president of Turkey, is calling, let's bring it back, whereas they had control over vast territory, but specifically had territory over Israel. And it's because York wins that battle. The allies win that World War I victory that they end up defeating the Ottoman Empire, who was aligned with Germany. And Israel is put back in the hands of the British, who eventually will give it to the Jews in 1948. Esther's story plays out that she ends up saving the Jewish people, and they're not wiped out. 480, 473 B.C. We're gonna talk more about those dates. So what do you do with this? Look, Haman went to a dinner party and thought he had God's favor, and it didn't, but he didn't, and it destroyed him. At the next dinner party, he would fall apart, his life would be destroyed, and he'll end up being killed on those same gallows. And I were gonna to say to you, today we have a dinner party, and I would tell you that it, we're thankful that all of you are here, but I wouldn't want you to think that we're just here to feed you. We're here always to make sure that you know the gospel of Jesus Christ and you have God's peace. Today, you can have God's favor when you come to Jesus. Make sure you do that. I'll be here right after the service. Carl will be by the 211 room. Come talk to us. Talk, talk to us after you eat. Make sure that today you know Jesus. And if you're a regular attender, and you're not someone who's come to faith, make sure you come to Jesus. There's only one way to have God's peace. Because, sadly for all of us, one day the bell will toll. We're all gonna die, and we all need to be ready. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to talk about your favor, to talk about... The story of Alvin York now, almost 100 years later, plus. To talk about the story of 1,000 years ago of Esther. Where we see life played out, how you bring your favor on us. And I would pray here that today, everyone here would leave with your favor. Because they know Jesus as their savior. I hope today that people sense our love and our care. And the reason we give this dinner is because we want people to be blessed. We want people to know that our God is a giving God. And that we we care for everyone in this room. That our heart's desire is that all come to know you. And we're here to help. May that come through. And your love shine forth as we point all people to Jesus. In the greatest act of love that humanity ever knew. It's in his name we pray. Amen.